0: So, we are starting Mark 5, 1 to 20 this morning. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he'd often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, "'Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them.' So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea." Give us understanding of your word.
1: Good morning. In Surprised by Joy, C.S. Lewis talks about his life before being saved. And he uses the imagery of this story to illustrate his life before conversion. He says, I was a zoo of lusts. A bedlam of ambitions, a nursery of fears, a harem of fondled hatreds, my name was Legion. Today we're talking about spiritual things. You're in a church, so this might be assumed. But on the flip side, how many of us, I mean how often do you and I, regard our lives from a physical practical standpoint we regularly talk of spiritual things if we're christians but then uh, sometimes we tend to live by what we see and can touch and can do somewhere in bruce Ware's systematic theology lectures i remember him speaking about a professor friend who would always talk about angels when beginning to lecture on apologetics or something like that And he said he was almost embarrassed because in arguing for the faith, talk of angels seemed like a step backward. But then one day he finally put it together and had nothing but commendation for this man. You see, in mentioning angels at the get-go, where his friend was placing his message clearly in the realm of the spiritual, mention angels and you can't help but think beyond this world to something bigger. We tend to spend so much of our thought life in the physical when really so much of what's going on around us is actually taking place in the spiritual realm. The sooner we realize this and live in this reality, the sooner our struggles will actually make sense. The sooner our prayer life will grow, the sooner we will live in moment to moment dependence upon our Savior, which in some ways is what defines what righteousness is. Again, C.S. Lewis, in his preface to the screw tape letters, he says there are two equal and opposite errors to which our race can fall about devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, and the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy fear or interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors, and hail the materialist and the magician with same delight. Our modern world doesn't know what to do with the spiritual. In our day, this scientific age, few people have a category in their brain for anything other than the material. Prove it, they say, and I'll believe. But demons? Well, that's Hollywood stuff nowadays. To this, David Platt says about our passage, Jesus believed in demons, and that should settle it for all of us, the question of their existence. So hot on the heels of Jesus calming the storm, Mark launches straight away into the second of a three-part series series, highlighting Jesus' divine power. Here's the trilogy of extraordinary events. One, Jesus says, peace and be calm, and the raging sea and ravaging tempests cease. Two, in our story today, Jesus is about to encounter the man possessed by a legion. And three, back on Jewish soil, Jesus will raise a child from the dead. Each of these three events is thoroughly and only God's turf. power over nature, power over the demonic, and power over death itself is for God alone to deal with. Therefore we witness Jesus acting with the very power of God. And these events, in these events, Jesus is calling His disciples to witness an absolute tour de force of who He is while exposing them to the mission that they are about to be a part of. Remember, Jesus tells them in John fourteen twelve, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these, because I am going to the Father. Having calmed the raging storm by his word, the Lord and the disciples reached the northern side of the Sea of Galilee, As soon as he steps onto dry ground, Jesus is confronted by a second kind of storm. One, all a a rage rather in a single man. Mark 5, 1 and 2. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. Now this is Gentile country. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat immediately there, Met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. From one test to the other, Jesus purposefully leads his disciples to greater and greater levels of trust. He does this for us too. Because he's the author of life and is sovereign over all events, he, as the Good Shepherd, leads us to and through trials and struggles in order to strengthen our faith and grow our trust in him. Faith is not downloaded. It's not presto. In general, our depth of confidence in God is hard fought, slow, long-suffered growth. But God creates a faith-filled people by again and again being a faithful God. God creates a faith-filled people By being a faithful God. So a man with an unclean spirit approaches. And to Mark's original audience, this situation would have been just too much. Over the top. Because he has an unclean spirit, which is what scripture frequently calls demons, and he's in an unclean land. This is no longer Jewish soil. He's living amongst the tombs, and anything dead is considered unclean to the Jew. And as we will see, the most unclean of animals in the Jewish mind gets mixed in this story as well. R.C. Sproul says that just about the only person in the Bible that rivals in mis- misery the plight of this man is perhaps Job. For a Jew, the worst thing in the world was to become ceremonially unclean. And this man was unclean four layers deep. Verses 3 to 5. He lived amongst the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles into pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he, always, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. This is an incredible situation. Think about it. If you have a loved one who would cry out and cut themselves, would you not try to help them by binding them? It's very possible that this man's family would have tried to restrain him for his own good. Is that not the kind thing to do? Conversely, The community would also seek to bind this man, but this time out of fear and out of worry. Worry for things that they cannot control. Therefore, this man's condition was so dire that both those who loved him and cared for him and those who feared him and hated him would have chosen the same outcome. Dehumanizing and cruel containment. But what choice did they have? No one could bind him anymore. speaks of a progression. At first, likely, he would have been held, embraced against his writhing. But then cloth or ropes became necessary, then wooden blocks, and finally not even shackles made of iron could tether this man. So he was ostracized and abandoned, sent out of society, because his strength was unworldly and his demeanor unrestrained. One problem that arises out of this story is that in trying, to f- is in trying to figure out who is animating this man, it's very hard to determine who's speaking, who's acting. Is it the man himself or the demon? Well, many have argued that tense and plurality of some of the words can distinguish the man from the demons. It's, it's cloudy and uncertain. Tormented from within, is this man howling and wounding himself for a moment's reprieve, choosing to hurt himself for the fleeting distraction of a different kind of pain? Or is the demon actually the one causing him to cut and to cry out? Does the demon cause him to run to Jesus in confrontation? Or does the man run to him begging freedom? These things are left unclear. Some things we are just not meant to know. Something that we do know is that the original Greek word behind the term subdue is tame. A word fit, in, fit only for wild animals. This man could no longer be tamed. Tamed by anyone his torment and rage was day and night his oppression and pain was now continually endless beyond hope and into this life walks jesus mark 5 6 to 8 and when jesus and when he saw jesus rather from afar he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. The man runs up and falls before him, but the demon does not immediately obey when commanded. Verse 8 reads, Jesus was saying, or kept saying, Come out of him, you unclean spirit. Come out of him. Then the demon begs Jesus by name and position. Jesus, son of the most high God, do not torment me. I'd like to point out right here, this verse, this demon, actually answers the fearful question posed by the disciples in the previous story. They ask from Mark 441, who is this then that even the wind and the sea obeys him? And then seven verses later, we have, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of most high God? Who is this that controls all things? It's Jesus, son of the most high God. James 2.19 says, you believe that God is one. One. It's Father, Son, and Spirit. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Next, Jesus asks an interesting question that unwraps more of the story to show how much worse off this man's situation really is. In verse 9, he says, What is your name? And he replies, My name is Legion, for we are many. You might know that a legion is a Roman military term for a large group of soldiers. Over time, the size of that number swelled so that, by Christ's day, a legion could refer to upwards of 6,000 soldiers. Were there 6,000 demons? Maybe. But it is an idiom as well. The term legion could mean a very large group, perhaps thousands. But either way, this is a very shocking response. This is a city of demons living and tearing apart one's soul. We use the term pandemonium to mean something gone crazy. But in its original use, pandemonium was the name for the city of demons. Pan meaning all, demon yum, all demon place. And disturbingly, incredibly, a pandemonium is the plight of this man. Mark 10. And he begged him, earnestly, do not send them out of this country. This term could mean a particular part of the earth, like a country or a region, but it very possibly can mean the physical world. Do not send us out of this realm. This interpretation could especially be true given a little detail from Luke's version of the gospel. He adds in Luke 8.31, And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Maybe this means sea, the sea that's just down the hill, but maybe this means the underworld, the prison of evil spirits, referred to in First and 2 Peter. And Jude 6b says this, He has kept them in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the day of the judgment of this great day. Sorry. Add to this another detail from Matthew's version of this story. Behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? They know their time is coming when Jesus, Lord of all, will banish them to the fires of hell but they know that some spirits are already imprisoned and awaiting judgment, and they don't want that. So they coyly appeal to Christ that perhaps their time for torment has not yet come. Verses 11 through 13. Now a herd of pigs was feeding on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. In Mark's day, no person, especially no Jew, would have batted an eye over the huge loss of animal life. It may be a huge economic tragedy, but certainly it was not a moral one. They were pigs. In fact, how fitting that unclean demons would be sent into unclean swine. But nowadays, how far from godly thought have we fallen? The modern man says, how unfair that these pigs died. Sproul tells of a professor that used this incident to proclaim, See, Jesus is not sinless at all. He killed 2,000 innocent pigs. Where is Jesus' compassion? such heresy is not the creator of all life able to use all life for his means further was it not the demons who killed the pigs not christ but and this is just so troubling in their day as well as ours this shows that at times people value pigs more than humans that an animal is of more worth than a creature that bears the image of the living God. No wonder our world approves of and even champions the killing of babies, the elderly, the infirm. To them, pigs have more value. Matthew 6, 26 says, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap or gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they. And Matthew 12, 12, 11 to 12 says, And a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. My friends, you are worth more than 10,000 birds, one million sheep, all animal life everywhere. Jesus did not lay down his life to save anything in all of creation except people. Every single human carries the very breath of God, the very image of the maker. And this is the gospel. In God's mercy, by Christ's blood, he still saves people for his glory. Verses 14 and 15. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Neither the man nor the onlookers could doubt the scale of deliverance. The disciples feared Jesus when they saw what he had done to the sea. Now the townsfolk fear him too. Verses 16 and 17, And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. The man with the legion was recognized by the locals. However, instead of praising Jesus for his rescue, they began to beg Jesus, leave us, leave this place. If Jesus can command even demons, what demands will he make upon us? This Jesus is more dangerous and worrisome than demons. If he would allow this level of economic loss, what else will we lose if he stays here? And so Jesus leaves. Verses 18 to 20. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began proclaiming in the Decapolis, that's the ten cities of the region, how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. So first, the demons begged Jesus not to torture them. Next, the locals begged Jesus to leave them alone, leave this area. And now this man himself begs Jesus, let me come with you, let me be with you. And in true storyteller form, Mark shows that Jesus acquiesces to the demons and doesn't cast them out of the pigs. Then he acquiesces to the people of the land and chooses not to stay. But to the man who he rescued, he says, No, you are to stay here and tell your friends what the Lord has done for you. He grants the demons and the locals their depravities. But to the man whom he had compassion, he gives the commission to proclaim the goodness of God. And he does. Several stories away, but still in the very next chapter, Jesus returns to this place, and the common people come to him in droves. They're glad he's back. They scramble that they might touch the fringe of his garment, says Mark six fifty six. What an amazing witness this man becomes. Let me tell you what the Lord has done for me. Let me tell you about the day I met Jesus. The authorities didn't want Jesus to stay. The chamber of commerce begged him to leave, but those in need of a savior ran to him. Now, this story is not about the clean versus the unclean. It's not about the willing versus the hard-hearted. It's not a lesson in how to exercise demons. This is not even a lesson in the value of human life. Instead, this story has a twofold purpose. One, it so clearly illustrates Satan's desire in this world. John 8.44 says he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And John 10.10 says the thief, Satan, comes only to steal and destroy and kill. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. So yes, a huge number of pigs plummet to their death but more than showing the value of one man's life, which this unequivocally does. This fact is included in the story to show just what the demons' intentions were with the man. They, all of them, were intent on destroying the man. And by God's grace, they could not. But as soon as they were given a host that could not resist them, Or did not carry God's divine protection, the demons killed every last thing they were allowed to destroy. Now, many commentators talk about the demons' need for a host, but they didn't care if they had a host to reside in or someone to do their bidding. They don't need a home, as it were. William Lane says their only purpose was to destroy the creation of God and halted in their destruction of a man, they fulfilled their purpose with the swine. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober-minded and watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Remember, this sermon is about the spiritual. What we see with our eyes isn't even half the story. Scripture says the spiritual forces of evil... Are ever at hand. Be watchful, be aware, be ready. But do not fear, for our only fear should be to fear God. Next, and this is of ultimate importance, Mark includes this story to further our understanding of who Jesus is, his power, his compassion, and his authority. Colossians 1, 19 and 20 says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Now this will cause all of his true followers to give God glory. This is a vibrant story. Mark gives more details by length than both Matthew and Luke put together. But he does it to advance more than just a memorable tale. This encounter serves as a microcosm. The man lurched and gnashed himself and cried out until Jesus saved him from his burden. Similarly, this world runs to and fro for the same sake. Ultimately, we can't make better choices, enact better policies, vote better governments, be better humans. What this world needs is a rescuer. Romans eight twenty two and 23 says, for we know that the whole of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So Jesus' work among the Gerasenes is the monumental one then. The symbolism goes very, very deep. It is an announcement, not only that Jesus has authority over demons, we already knew that though, from the five times Mark has specifically mentioned exorcisms already. Instead, this is a story that is a victory announcement, that Christ is marching into enemy territory, that he is subduing thousands of demons at once, and that he is showing his kingdom, that his kingdom will supersede all others. Patrick Schreiner calls this a political announcement, meaning one of public and governmental significance. Luke 4, 5, and 6, the devil took Jesus up, And showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been given to me, and I give it to whom I will. This and many other passages like it show that Satan is behind the authorities of this world. So if we overlay this reality onto our story, we see that it isn't just a spiritual exorcism. That's being performed. It is actually Jesus confronting the powers that animate this world. Schreiner continues by citing that legion is a symbol of Roman authority. And in fact, pigs were a symbol and emblem of certain legions within the Roman war machine. In this story, Jesus is proclaiming another aspect of his kingdom come. It's a foretaste of his total rule. Taken on the whole then, it's easy to see the link between this incident and the grand narrative of Jesus' triumph at the cross. Soon he will conquer the whole thing, all the powers of this world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Soon after this, Jesus will submit himself to the Roman government he will receive their prescribed punishment for insurrection. But in going along with their authority, he undermines the whole thing. Laying his life down becomes the weapon that in the end defeats the devil, his nations, and death itself. Jesus the Lamb dies in place of his people. What's more, he calls his true followers to similar sacrifice saying, take up your cross daily and fight not with the weapons of this world. Show that your true king is Jesus, that he has your full allegiance, and do this all while obeying the ruling authorities at the moment. This is upside-down living, living for Christ instead of self. This is demolition-level subversion, fearing God more than fearing man or even demons. This is living in the abundance of God's power, disregarding all the false realities that surround us in the physical. Scripture tells us that we are in a spiritual battle. Our problems are not the problems that we see. There is legion against us, but there is God for us. Christian, because Jesus is all-powerful and good, because Jesus is together both just and merciful. And because Jesus is making all things new, you can live with utter freedom to obey God. And because Jesus is able to orchestrate all things, you have total assurance that the things that you are experiencing are for your growth and your good, even when they hurt. And that as a full citizen of the kingdom, you can fully Glorify God. Father, I thank you for this story. It is a memorable one from my childhood. I thank you that you have shown supremacy over even the dark forces. And that, Lord, as you have conquered the demons and rescued this man, you are conquering all evil and rescuing a people for your glory. Lord, we want that. We want our lives to glorify you. Help us to lay down, to kill all the things in it that detract from worshiping you. And Lord, thank you that we can do it together in the community of believers. For Jesus' name's sake, for your glory, amen.